Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our discussion. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I have with me the authors of what they're calling the best book on payments ever written, The Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything. Gottfried Liebrand is the former CEO of SWIFT, an organization that allowed him to indulge to the full three aspects of his personality that he for many years kept well hidden from family, friends and colleagues, the payments nerd, the networks geek and the standards dweeb. Immediately prior to joining SWIFT, Gottfried got a PhD from Maastricht in economics on the topic of network effects in payment systems. Before that, he led the European payments practice at McKinsey, which he joined after taking his MBA at Stanford. Since retiring from SWIFT in 2019, he has served as a technical advisor to the Bank for International Settlements and as a board member of fintech startup Yes.com. He's also, of course, been busy writing the payoff. Natasha de Turan is the former head of corporate affairs at SWIFT, which she joined from a similar role at LCH. Her career began on the trading floors of the derivatives, money and bond markets at, among other firms, Dornay Day and Robert Fleming before she turned to writing. Previous publications include the much acclaimed Collateral, Securities Lending, Repo, OTC Derivatives, and the Future of Finance. The best book on the securities financing industry. Best books, as you can see, are habit-forming. Today, Natasha is a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a member of the advisory group on a uh, international strategy for cybersecurity and the global financial system. She also sits on the UK Financial Services Consumer Panel and the Payment Systems Regulator Panel and serves on the advisory panel of the Woolard Review of Unsecured Credit Market Regulation. Now, in addition to uh, our two authors, we do, of course, also have you, our audience, uh, their readers, and uh, do ask Gottfried and Natasha anything you like. Just use the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Now, we won't be saving your questions up to the end. We'll answer them as we go along, so you can be part of this discussion right from the start. And I think I speak for all three of us when I say that we'll be very disappointed uh, if you don't take this opportunity to ask them searching questions and of course make uh, telling comments as well. So please do that. I'd like to kick the discussion off by talking about the difficult subject of cost because uh, Gottfried, your book includes some very striking numbers on this subject. Uh, it estimates transaction costs in payments at uh, one and a half to two trillion dollars a year globally which adds up to somewhere between 1% and 3% of GDP, depending on how big or uh, uh, transactional your country is. Now, that adds up on average to $1,000 per person on the planet. Uh, now, those costs are, of course, equivalent to the revenues of the banks, uh, and they represent bites taken out of, and other interesting figures you have, it's $37 trillion of retail purchases, $1,000 trillion a year of corporate payments, and $5,000 trillion a year of financial flows between companies, governments, banks, and uh, fund managers. Yet most of that cost, that one and a half to two trillion, seems to fall on uh, the poor old retail customer, even before the businesses pass the, uh, the cost they're paying on to the customer. Now, most retail customers don't know that because the charges are hidden from them. They're not explicit fees they see on the bank statement, though they see those as well, uh, but they are charges that the merchants pass on, uh, their net interest margin, and of course, they are extortionate rates of, uh, of interest on credit and extortionate spreads on FX. So interesting point of departure for our discussion, Gottfried, is how come the smallest uh, segment of the market, the, the segment of the market least able to bear the cost, ends up paying most of it? Yeah, I think that's related. That's because most of the costs are related to number of transactions and not the value of transactions. And while the huge values are in the wholesale financial parts of the market. The huge transaction numbers are at the retail end where daily consumers make their, make their purchases. And, and maybe to jump ahead to later in the discussion, but at the retail end, those numbers can be very big indeed. China alone accounts for almost half of all those electronic retail uh, transactions, uh, thanks to Alipay and, and WeChat. Uh, but the numbers can be, uh, can be huge there. Uh, in, in China alone, we're talking literally like a trillion, uh, half a trillion transactions a year, another half a trillion transactions in the rest of the world. So those are a huge number of transactions and they tend to drive the cost at the end of the day. It is not much more expensive to wire a billion than say wire a hundred dollars at the end of the day when it comes to the operational, to the operational cost. Mm -hmm. Now, 
cross-border payments are even even worse, um, as your book also points out. And this this matters. Uh, one retail perspective it matters from, of course, is remittances. And where the last number I saw for the value of remittances was like 551. It's a BIS figure, 551 billion uh, of remittances sent. So some of the people who migrants sending money back home to support their families are paying um, even higher costs and. This is one of the reasons that the BIS, for example, has said that a, a CBDC might be helpful. You could join together uh, payment systems. But I wonder, I wonder why cross-border payments are so much more expensive. We've got this very complex structure of um, global bank, banks, which operate as hubs, and you've got regional hubs, and you've got, you've got 25,000 banks in the world, uh, all of whom need to offer some sort of cross-border payment services to the thing. But it seems to run through uh, this, these layers of... of of hubs, uh, and and of course, ultimately through through CLS, through which I think they have seventy member banks, and then there's a, a, another fourteen of those banks. I think offer services beyond that as third party providers to corporates and and asset managers as well. So the market is is quite tightly concentrated. And while I, you know, while I can understand that that um, you know, exchanging. Uh, uh, Congolese francs for Zambian quarters isn't exactly the, the most high volume market in in the world. Uh, what explains the high cost of of cross border payments? Is it this concentration of the banks, or is there something peculiar about settling uh, FX transactions, as it were, which makes cross border payments so much more expensive than domestic ones? Well, let, let's first start with the fact that they are they are inherently more expensive for a, com- a couple of reasons. One of them is is just the complexity of routing it. Whereas in a domestic context, you know, all the banks have a unified number, all the addresses are unified, uh, account number systems tend to be unified. So in, in a British context, if you send something through BACS, say, you know, we've got standard sort codes, addresses, etc. If you send something, some some money to somebody in China, say, you've got to deal with Chinese addresses, uh, Chinese bank codes, you've got to identify where that account is being held. So that's one source of complexity. And I think the flip side of it is the wonderful thing is that you actually can send money to anybody anywhere in the world who has bank accounts. That, I mean, that, that we can look at it both, uh, both ways. Um, so that's one source of complexity. The other source is um, what we call compliance. Uh, we tend to put much more scrutiny on cross-border payments than we put on domestic payments when it comes to anti-money laundering, sanctions, know your customer, terrorist finance, and, and all of those things. So that's a second source of why, why they tend to be more costly. And the third part is it does involve a change of currency. Uh, inherently, a cross-border payment does involve a change of, of currency. And yes, there, um, in, in, in currency markets, at the end of the day, most trading is done between big currencies. And effectively, most of it is done against the dollar, even even. Uh, the biggest corridors always involve the dollar at one end. So yes, there is only a very thin market to go from Zambia to say Thailand, and you tend to go over some of the big uh, currencies. Um, so the spreads tend to, tend to be uh, to be higher. So that's why inherently cross-border is more expensive. I think worker remittances is, is, is a particularly hard hit segment, partly because uh, again, you, the costs are related to the number of transactions and not to the value. And these tend to be fairly low value transactions, but they still carry the same cost as a, as a larger value transactions. And the other side of it is there aren't that many. Um, so I guess historically banks haven't found it profitable, if you will, to invest in platforms to do that. Credit cards have been there we there have been more um, economies of scale and and therefore it is easier to do a cross-border credit card transaction or cross-border atm withdrawal if you if you will because there the platforms have been built to do that and the volumes are greater although there are still if you look at the fx charges you still pay for cross-border credit cards and, and atm withdrawals if you if you want but it's a combination of those effects i think that have made it historically expensive now, to be honest, I think everybody's realizing that it is a pain point and, and low-end cross-border transactions have been increasing dramatically, driven by e-commerce, migrant workers, increasing globalizations, etc. So I do think that the, the race is on by both banks and challengers to build cheaper solutions. And, and I can point to TransferWise or other operators who have been sort of paving the way to make these transactions more, say, say cheaper and, and more transparent for consumers. Now, um, I'd like you to think a little bit uh, um, about whether a CBDC 
interoperating payment systems would help. I, I don't think you discussed that in the book, but um, it's a while since I read it, but think about that. But before we do, I'd like to bring um, Natasha in um, to talk about um, about correspondent banks. All that work, uh, Natasha, which, which Gottfried referred to, uh, is really being done by correspondent banks. You've got, you say in the book, there's an average of 2.6 banks, uh, moving that, I don't know, one and a half trillion a day across across borders. Uh, and you say somewhere in the book that, that the correspondent banking industry hasn't kept up. Um, clearly, cross-border payments are suboptimal by comparison to domestic equivalents. So how, how, what can we do about it? What can be changed? I think we said hadn't kept up rather than hasn't kept up. I think, I think it has moved quite a bit in, in the last several years, and that's impacted on, on the larger payments. Um, I think, I mean, to, to, you know, we, don't, we just have to go back over all the points that Godfrey's made, made in the previous, in his previous answer as to what we need to change. I mean, if we got rid of currency sovereignty and legal jurisdictions and had a single global DM type thing, um, then we could be there. Um, but we don't look like uh, we want that. Certainly central banks don't look like they want that. Um, I think what's interesting at the moment is you see the CS and the FSB and the, the BIS and, and so forth lamenting this the situation, particularly with the remittances. Um, and historically, their kind of directionality has been towards the banks. Um, I'm not sure profit-making banks are going to solve this problem. I'm not sure necessarily any organisation with a profit imperative is going to solve the problem, but certainly not um, I wouldn't have thought the banks at this stage in, in proceedings. So I think what, what will be interesting is where they might turn to next to try and solve this conundrum. conundrum. Uh, CBDCs, maybe, uh, but that would presuppose that not only you know, the PBOC and the Fed and the Bank of England and the ECB all sing to the, hem, the same hymn sheet, but also that the, the emerging economies or developing economies can also get there with their own CBDCs. So it's not it's not a slam dunk. You can't just develop this, you know one system and hope it'll all work. But I'd look to tech or CB or CBDCs to sort it out. Mm-hmm. Godfrey, did you want to just want to add something? We've had a very interesting question come in, which I'd like to put you in a minute. But did you want to add something on that CBDC as a solution to cross-border payment transaction costs? What you think of that as an answer? Well, I don't know. So. Um, I'm going back to there. There are countries where people will actually put dollar bills in an envelope to get worker remittances home, right? So if you want to, if you want to get money to Venezuela, that's pretty much your only option because they've been excluded from the banking system. So people actually do that. They put physical banknotes in an envelope to send it home to their family. Um, and a CBDC is a solution to effectively do that, but do it over the internet. Send the banknote over the internet, right? That's what it allows you to do. It still has some of the same problems that sending a banknote has, which is the recipient gets a banknote in another currency, what's he gonna do with that? So it, it presupposes that there are markets to then convert that CBDC. You know, so say you send money home from China in the Chinese uh, CBDC, uh, you're in Zambia, you get that EU one, what are you gonna do with it? You need to convert it then into something you can spend. It is still a foreign currency. So it, I think it requires a number of things to, to work there. Um, what you find is that the transaction costs of CBDCs are not exactly, or of cryptocurrencies in general, aren't exactly zero either. There are transaction costs. There are costs to convert it uh, into a different currency or uh, between uh, cryptocurrencies. So you'll face some of the same problems that you have in, uh, in traditional uh, money. But I, I, I'm sure that in certain markets, they could provide a solution, especially those where where either have been excluded from the banking system or where banking isn't well penetrated or are having difficulties connecting to the, to the global banking system. Mm-hmm. Are you saying we need commercial banks to do the FX business, to convert that Chinese yuan into Zambian kwacha, for example? Central banks would never get involved in that, in your opinion? Um, well, I, I've heard all sorts of um, ventures, so I would not exclude anything, uh, but I would think that either commercial banks or non, I mean, uh, FX trading isn't uh, confined to commercial banks. Eh? There are other people in the FX trade as well, uh, dealers, the whole cottage industry of carry traders, mom and pops uh, who, uh, who trade currencies. Um, so if you, if you are to believe the, the crypto aficionados, they say we can leave this to a wide ecosystem of, of you know, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, who can serve as FX markets in, in crypto. Yeah. 
me up. I feel confident I could find somebody on Cairo Road in Lusaka to change my yuan into uh, into uh, Zambian kwacha. Anyway, Sean David has asked uh, um, uh, an interesting question here, which is, um, would it be correct to say that retail consumers bear the majority of the cost because at the point of sale, they have no real choice of methods and corporates can and do negotiate between various options. And if that is so, would introducing a point of sale alternative like account to account payments bring the costs down nationally initially and internationally later? Whereas when we're in the shop, we don't have enough choice, but corporates do. Is that a reason? Well, I would, if I can jump in here and then let Natasha. I think the irony is actually that in, in cards, the networks have chosen to charge the merchant rather than the consumer then obviously eventually the consumer pays because the merchant will discount it in the overall prices and the consumer at the end always pays but it's precisely because it's the consumer that decides which instrument to pick and and what to pay that they've tried to keep it as cheap as possible for the consumer and often rewarding the consumer with loyalty points and all these things and charging the, the, the merchant discount, so to speak, to the merchant and, and passing that on to the consumer or to the issuing bank through, uh, through interchange. So I think the irony is actually that the customers don't pay directly because they have a choice of payment instruments. I don't think that the split between what retail pays versus what wholesale pays is driven driven by that in the in the end i don't think that that plays a role uh, to be honest I, and and i don't think corporates pay less because they have more choice uh, than, than retail i think there's there's no um, to a large extent both segments pay for their own costs so the, the retail segment pays to bear its own costs and, and the corporates uh, as well so and just just to add on to that, I mean, I think in, in some cases, regulation prevents discounting for different payment types. So where you might have a choice of paying in cash by card or, or account transfer, merchants may be obliged to price things the same way today, um, unlike sort of five or 10 years ago when a taxi always charged you less for paying in cash. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't think it's, it's, it's that easy to, to see it like that. Is, is account to account payments um, a reasonable option? He, he goes on to point out here that Singapore and Thailand um, connected their, their Vocalink provided payment systems. So yes, that is, I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of movement there where people will connect local retail systems, especially now that they've become real time, right? like faster payments in the UK or NPP in Australia. And the thought is that if you can connect those directly, you could send the payment straight as if it were a domestic payment. I think in practice, it's proven a little more complex than that, partly because uh, these local retail systems are built to serve domestic currency or the domestic uh, audiences. So you need to, you need to it involves an FX conversion, uh, which domestic systems aren't geared to. So you need to be able to explain to the customer at what rate you're going to do that, et cetera. You often need to capture more information from the customer than for domestic uh, payments. Like I said, compliance information like sanctions and, and, and money laundering. So it is not as straightforward, but it is possible. You could, you could, if you adapt the interface of these domestic systems, allow them to send money abroad as well. Um, the thing is, I, I, it will only, I think it will only work if you get a critical mass of a lot of these systems to, uh, to work together, because at the end of the day, the Thai-Singapore corridor may not be that big. So is there sufficient traffic on there to warrant these extra investments to upgrade it for international payments. But if you were able to get a lot of these systems together in a region, then yes, that might be that might be a route to go. Yeah. So network effects, and you, you know all about those uh, in Gottfried. We'll, we'll... You also mentioned instant payment. Um, and and it's quite a good way, segue, I think, into the whole nature of the innovation that's been taking place in the, in the payments industry. Instant payment is now a global trend. We've even got the United States uh, moving towards instant, you know, the land of the check, moving towards uh, instant payment with with Fed now, I think it's called. Um, my question is, uh, and Natasha is probably one for you: uh, Is faster payment uh, always good, or is there a downside to it as well? Um, well, I, I think at the risk of sounding like King Canute or a sort of geriatric, and Godfrey and I were constantly reminded by our editor uh, as we wrote, as we were editing, the, she was editing the book, that all our examples were sort of pre 
1950 and could we sort of bring things up into the, into the 21st century? Um, I, I think it's fast payment is good, um, but it needs to be safe as well. And I'm not sure that safety is keeping up at the moment, certainly in, in some countries where you have very, very fast payment schemes uh, in the UK, for instance, but you don't have agreed security measures and, and redress measures for consumers and, and so forth. So yes, faster is good and it reduces, you know, it, it gets more stock back on the shelves. It's, it's good, it's great for the economy, it's great for consumers, everything can move faster, so long as it's safe. Mm -hmm. And by safe, you mean that the payment actually gets to the person it's intended to get to and that, because there's no time to recover it. Yes. Right. So the frauds are intercepted, um, but also that, there, you know, that there's a plan for what happens when things go wrong. So if I, as a consumer, make a mistake, I know who to go to and what I'll get back. Yeah. Now, um, one I mean, of the there, there is there's one other thing to say to that. I mean, part of the appeal of these faster payment systems is also that they're very cheap. Um, so they're built on a very different model than the card payments, which have historically also been instant. The card payments have, I think, used the margin that they make to some extent um, to also give greater protection to consumers. You, you, you get insurance on the product, you get the ability to do a chargeback if you don't like the product, etc. And card payments are able to do that because they have inherently higher margins, whereas many of the faster payment systems struggle because their pricing is bare bones. So there is much less room to absorb fraud or these type or errors on, on part of the consumer, so to speak. So mm -hmm. now you, you talk quite a bit about the nature of, of, of innovation in the book. And uh, as Natasha was just joking that all your examples come from the, the 1950s, one which- Not oh, anymore, not anymore, just to be no. clear. The book okay. moves very that, fast. Well, the, the version I read did have the Diners Club story in it. I, I, that didn't survive the, the final edition perhaps. Um, but it, it, it made a good point, actually, which is that most innovations do either start very small or specialist like Diners Club, um, or they, they build on existing conventions. Um, PayPal started very small as well. Um, again, use of existing conventions, things like Apple Pay and Google Pay, all really build upon existing debit and credit cards. They don't represent a, a massive revolution, innovation revolution in what's happening uh, in payments. Hardly anybody is, is accepting Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency in, in terms of, of payments. So the bank rails remain in, in place most of the time and, and most of these innovations have to rely on the existing networks. In fact, one idea I really took away from your book is that most of the innovation we've seen in payments is what, you know, a kind of Potemkin innovation where all that's really happened is, a, is that the revenues have been taken away from banks and given to a lot of mainly wealthy men who've done very well out of it without actually fundamentally changing anything. So all payment systems are still reliant on bank rails, they're still tied to the past. And so you get this bias to the status quo where people make a lot of money out of really just reallocating uh, um, business between uh, um, banks and themselves. And it's only in those countries where there isn't an infrastructure to get in the way, like um, Kenya with Impesa, that you actually get uh, genuine innovation. There's nothing there to compete with what you're with what you're doing. Um, is there any route around this? I suppose it's commercial reality. Is there any work around? Yeah. Is there any way of getting some genuine innovation, Gottfried? I, I'd like to point to one which is still my favorite, which is Square, which uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, I mean, the man must be a genius. They came up with the idea of putting that little Square dongle inside the audio jack of a mobile phone. They figured out that the only thing that was common to all mobile phones was that audio jack. <laughs> they managed to convert the reading of the Mac Stripe into an audio signal that goes into your mobile phone. So they were, they were able to turn every mobile phone into a car terminal. So they leveraged the existing infrastructure to the max, you know, the existing card infrastructure and the existing mobile phone uh, infrastructure to, I have to say, revolutionize the way cards are used. Yeah, you can now use your card in the physical world in, in anybody who has a mobile phone. And lots of mom and pop shops who couldn't accept cards before now are able to do that. So I, I, I still think that's a, a, a beautiful way of innovating within the confines of, of leveraging the existing rails in a country that seems very mature from a payment perspective like the US. Mm -hmm. But did that represent a, a meaningful threat to Visa or MasterCard? 
maybe not to Visa and MasterCard, but it did to the existing acquirers, to 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 the people like uh, First Data, Total Systems, and all these people, the, the giants of the world pace of this world, who has been uh, sort of dominating the field of, of capturing merchants and, and signing them up for card payments. Mm-hmm. But and it, the, the, yeah, the value of Square, I mean, to be, I think it's uh, uh, north of 100, mil, 100 billion right now. Eh? They've done quite well out of it. Uh-huh. But even if I think even if those two didn't didn't do anything to sort of challenge Visa and Mastercard and, and their duopoly, what they did do was open up huge business opportunities, commercial opportunities that were simply not viable before then. So they they played an enormously important role in that sense. And do Alipay and Tenpay, and for that matter Stripe, do they fall into that same category? Are they disrupting those existing acquirers as well? Absolutely, I would say. I mean, Stripe, um, the beauty of Stripe is that they made it extremely, they did what Square did for the physical world, you know, to plug it into your mobile phone. They wrote a piece of code that can plug it basically into any website and start accepting uh, payments. So they did for the online world what Square did for the physical world. And Alipay and WeChat, I mean, are they disrupting merchant acquirers? Yes, they're, in the, there are not many numbers in China that are going down. One number that is going down is the number of merchants accepting cards. I mean, people are actually dropping their terminal in China um, in favor of Alipay and Tenpay because it's way cheaper to accept these instruments and everybody has them than to accept card payments. So uh, yes, they are hugely disruptive. Mm-hmm. But just before we leave the subject of, of innovation, you know, I, I began this discussion about innovation by saying that there is this path dependence uh, is the is the economic term for this, uh, and you've mentioned the example of, the, of Square and the audio jack uh, as as technology being able to change something quite substantially. But as you look through what's gone on in payments, even over the last forty or fifty years, and you think about ATMs and chips in cards, uh, you know point of sale terminals, um, and putting your wallet on your on your mobile phone, um, it still seems that despite all that. A lot, of, a lot of it, as I say, Potemkin innovation, which has taken place, we're really still running along bank rails. We still have these enormously valuable card duopolists. Um, I mean, technology doesn't seem to be able, perhaps the one example you put forward, to be able to really turn this industry on its head. Or am I, am I just wrong about that, that, that technology is not as powerful a tool in payments as it might be in some other markets? I would argue that the industry is being turned on its head like never before. Um, cash payments. I mean, we are now approaching in several countries the point where cash is no longer used in shops. In the good old cash. Central banks are starting to worry what what's the world without cash in everyday use going to going to look like. Um, and 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 what happens if it falls below a critical threshold where merchants say, well, for those few customers who still want cash it's not profitable for us to maintain those balances and, and maintain all the hassle of dropping it off at the end of the day. We're just going to stop accepting it. Um, the same for, for banks. I mean, the number of ATMs is going down quite rapidly um, and, and we're going to face real issues as cash is, is being phased out. So I, I think it, the world is, is completely turned upside down. And I, can, I can keep on going with these examples. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think... I think like, it, is, it is a difficult one to change, particularly if you look to the consumer to change, because if you look at all the changes that did happen, they sort of happened to us as consumers rather than us choosing. We didn't choose to, to get a check card. We didn't choose for that to turn into an ATM card or for that to turn into a debit card and that or that to become a contactless debit card or for the, the limit on that to go up to £100 in the UK. So there, there are things that just happened to us and we adopted them. And then when cash became difficult, uh, during the last year or 18 months, then we've, we've, we've stopped using that. And we started using PayPal because it was a convenient thing to do when, when eBay started. So, I mean, I don't know who wakes up in the morning as a consumer and thinks, mm, gosh, let me change my payment instrument today. I, I don't think it's something that consumers think about. And I think it's one of the big struggles that the account to account will have, because I, I think right now it's, it's quite a difficult proposition to sell in, in some jurisdictions, just because things aren't entirely sorted out, I think, from a, from a risk standpoint, from consumer risk standpoint. Um, but how, how, how do you sell that? How, how, do you, how do you convince me to, to pay a different way at, at the cash point? Unless you can discount it, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not, we're inert. 
Well, Natasha, if what you say is true, uh, payments can't function as a market. Markets are driven by consumers and, and suppliers responding to, to consumer demand, I suppose. A bit more complicated than that. Mm. You have to put things in front of them as well. But, but it must make it very difficult for payments to work as a market. And it's funny, we do often, we, we talk about payments as an industry. We talk about payment systems. We don't actually often talk about payments as, as markets. So to go back to, to Gottfried's area of expertise, networks, is that what payments really are? They're about networks and, and network effects. They're not about technology or systems or markets with suppliers and consumers in them. How would you describe payments? So is that me or Godfrey? Um, well, if it was me, it's, it's all of those, which is why it's such a fascinating thing to learn about or it's such a fascinating industry to work in because it, it, it's about all of those things. History, geography, culture, habits, inertia, competition, lack of competition, network effects, mm -hmm. um, legacy, standards, just the whole... And then, then you can get on to, you know, sort of... Uh, standards. Well, talk, talk to me about standards. You, you don't talk that much about, despite your backgrounds in SWIFT, you don't talk that much about standards, yet they must be the key to opening networks. Well, I have to say that one of the most um, challenging um, papers I've ever written was um, a paper on standards designed to be interesting to the general audience. <laughs> And, and it is fascinating and it is hugely important and you have the most fantastic people working in, in these arc somewhat arcane areas and without whom all sorts of our lives, including payments, you know, simply wouldn't work or would work far less well. Um, but, you know, even a standards battle is difficult to, you know, incite much interest outside that, that universe of, of people in, in the stand as well. But, but they are hugely important. And I think on, on CBDC, it will be one of the determinant questions whether CBDC, well, presuming they, they do happen in a widespread sort of way, um, whether they can actually do anything to improve the cross-border challenges that we have today. Now, I know there's lots of standards people listening to this. I've been very, very nice to them because I can see them all listed on the right-hand side of the screen. Well, we've, uh, just to give my tip, I, I, chip in. I, I mean, to some extent, networks and standards are closely related, um, and 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 I do think networks play an outsized role. Of course, that's what I would say, given my given my background. Um, but some of the issues with that you now see played out in the tech industry. I mean, the whole battle between uh, Facebook, Google, etc. You could argue is a battle between networks, but it's also a, a battle between standards. How easy is it to take your history from Facebook and take it somewhere else? How easy is it to transfer your identity how easy is it to interoperate between these networks so i think a lot of what we now see play out in tech world is in, is because they are networks and standards as well uh, and that's what you've seen in payments there are there are absolutely market forces but when there are big networks involved those market forces obey i think somewhat they, those influence the way market forces work you put it that way you get things like excess inertia, excess momentum, uh, the, the winner takes all. There are a couple of couple of things that influence these market dynamics. Now, obviously, Facebook, Amazon, they have networks in place. They may not have the standards, as you say, but why? what explains why they haven't, um, to some extent, they kind of are getting into this, very obviously, in the case of, of Facebook, but with what's now called DM, but also with Amazon, Amazon Pay and a variety of other payment options have been around for a while. But why haven't they really committed to the payments industry? They must have seen a lot of people in Silicon Valley getting enormously wealthy uh, by getting into the payments business. You just said, you know, Square is worth $100 billion now, so they've done very well out of it. What's holding them back? They've got the networks, they just don't have the standards. Seems like an easy goal for them to score to me. Well, I think they are doing lots of different things and they have been sort of gradually move, moving deeper into payments areas, but I think that they're choosing their battles. I think the, I think if you look at everything against the original Libra declamation of summer 2018, 19, whenever it was, then everything will pale in comparison to, <laughs> to what they intended to do. But then the announced intention was so completely unfeasible. I don't think that's a surprise. Um, but they're, they're certainly getting deeper into credit. And if you look at where banks make the money on, on payments, it's probably from, more from the credit side than, than from the actual payments. So, so, you know, I think they're choosing their battles. Um, but they're, they're, they're there. 
And I think if, I mean, it was very interesting to hear Benoit Carré the other day, um, the BIS talking about CBDCs, and I think he was asked in the press conference why, why, you know, why the urgency now on CBDCs, was it X, Y, or, or, or the fangs? And, and he very much answered it was big tech. Mm -hmm. At least that was my understanding. I don't want to uh, misquote the BIS. Yeah, and maybe sometimes they're in payments in ways that we don't always realize. And the whole story about Apple and the App Store, where they take a 30% cut on all the app purchases, um, that adds up to a significant stream of revenue for Apple now. I think it's, it's something like 10% of their total revenue comes from the cut that they take on payments in the App Store. And you could argue that that is a payments business. It's because the consumer has set up his credit card and everything to pay in the App Store that Apple leverages that to basically offer a payment services to whoever develops an app. Thank you very much. And takes a 30% cut. And Amazon doesn't do the same. Amazon is starting to do the same with Amazon Pay. You can now, I don't know if that's happened to you, you can, some people will offer Amazon Pay as a payment option. I found one of the UK rail providers offered it recently. And since my card didn't work, I use that. And what it does is, if you have an Amazon profile with your cart uh, attached to it, you can use that to pay for a purchase. And again, the Amazon uses the fact that they have your payments data on file and then allow you to pay. They're essentially, a, it, it's like a wallet service. Um, and, and all of the big tech giants are now sort of experimenting with wallet service one way or another. Apple Pay is the clearest example. Amazon Pay is an example, Google Pay. And, and the only one that's not going down the app, the, the wallet road, is uh, Facebook, but they're going, I guess, the crypto road with the DM. Yeah. And I think in the case of eBay and Amazon, they're both offering um, merchant credit, and certainly Amazon, I think, is doing buy now, pay later. So you know the juicy bits, they're they're, they're definitely mm -hmm. <laughs> they're definitely after them. Yeah, there's a famous um, Nordic uh, online vendor whose model is built in the same way. <laughs> I forget the name. I'm sure you remember it. Um, now, uh, we've had an interesting question from Fabian, um, Fabian Vandenreit uh, uh, on financial crime. He says a recent economist report that uh, he cites a recent economist report that payments frauds, anti-money laundering scandal are growing year on year, which causes the magazine to say it's helpless uh, to solve and the move to digital payments doesn't make it any easier. Um, he asked what trick is the industry or the governments um, missing. Now you actually talk quite a lot in the book about, about financial crime, particularly about, about money laundering and, and sanctions screening and sanctions busting. You talk about the compliance burden this puts on banks. And you also talk about the fact that AML, KYC, CFT sanction screens actually shrunk. You talk about the correspondent banking industry and it shrunk uh, the number of banks prepared to get involved in correspondent banking and indeed in, in, in trade finance. So it's a non, trivial issue, this financial crime, yet payments inevitably, because it's money, are very exposed to, to financial crime. Do you, what, what, what do you think about, do you think the, the payments industry, Fabian's question, is the payments industry actually making it worse by digitizing itself, or should it be doing better for, for other reasons on financial crime? Gottfried. Yeah, so this is, <laughs> this is an interesting one. Um, I think part of the reason, let's take money laundering. Part of the reason, first of all, it's not new. Eh? Some of the examples in the book are from the 80s, I think, with BCCI, et cetera. So, so this is not an entirely new phenomenon from the digital age. But it is true that, yes, it's become much easier to set up accounts in other countries. It's been much easier to move money, um, which benefits us all. But that has also made it easier to launder money across uh, across the globe and to to play tax arbitrage and use tax jurisdictions that are that are friendly or allow you to hide your uh, your money. So part of the reason is that the world has been coming becoming uh, more global um, and that makes it more difficult, I think, it requires more cooperation that's not always there between jurisdictions to go after the tax havens, the bad guys, etc. A, a good example is fraud. Um, now, if you look at internet fraud and cyber fraud, a lot of the bad guys are hiding in jurisdictions that aren't particularly keen to, to extradite the, the criminals, even if you're able to identify them. So the fact that the world is becoming more global does create opportunities for fraud and it allows people to hide where previously you could find them in your own country. 
you could throw crypto in the mix. I mean, uh, Bitcoin and Monero are the instrument of choice for the ransomware um, uh, exploiters, so to speak. So yeah, they are they're leveraging the new technologies as much as anybody else. Um, now, historically, it's always been a cat and mouse game and an arms race. So as the bad guys catch up, I think the, 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 the good guys certainly find the tools to, uh, to fight them. So it's a bit of an arms race. Whether overall it's going up, I, I wouldn't be able to say. I think so far it seems to be keeping up on, uh, on both ends. And I think just on the, on the money laundering front, if you think about it, 20 years ago in, in many European countries, you could buy a house, a very big house, castle, with cash. And the level of criminality hasn't gone down. So by necessity, these people, I presume, need to get it into the banking system. But I think what's I think what digital does do is offer the the new players the ability to be much nimbler than the incumbents. Um, and I think there's some really exciting stuff that can be done there. I'm not sure that their attention is so much focused on the um I, I don't know, but um, in capturing clients, they might be more focused on the customer experience than on the KYC and AML obligations. Um, but you know, not to not to plug uh, all our organisations of former colleagues, but one of our former colleagues is working at a, um, at a company called Notarium, doing just that, um, or you know, using developing API-based FCC and AML tools, which can really, if you don't have a huge incumbent legacy system that you've got to to network your way through it, you can be much much nimbler so i think that's exciting but again i'm not sure that that's where they're, they're focusing their efforts on to go back to fabian van der Rijt's question you know, what's the trick that's being missed is it possible that that digital identity is the trick which the industry is missing if people had digital identities it could cut the cost of running these checks and possibly decrease the amount of um, fraud and, and money laundering that, that goes on as a result. Is that, the, is that the missing trick? Digital IDs. Yeah, I can, I can, Natasha, you want to, I, I can speak to that as well. I, I think the, it could be part of the solution and, and the, the real issue is not digital because we all have digital identities. Eh? We, we are, our banks have our data. They know who we are. I think it's the ability to use your digital identity with other providers and to to sort of show it show it elsewhere to really create a digital passport. That's why the part bank, that in that case, Godfrey, why, don't banks, why don't banks get into the business of issuing us with digital IDs? Is it not a natural thing for them to do? They, if they've got this information, why not use it? And, and I think Nordics, I think it? that's actually I think that is an opportunity for banks. I mean, they have not only that data; they also have authentication. That means you you. But because there's money involved, their mechanism for authenticating that you really are you is pretty strong compared to other providers, say Facebook or Google. So yes, I do think there's an opportunity for them there. We now all use our Google login details or our Facebook login details to identify ourselves everywhere. But the, the bank identity, one, the quality of the data is higher and second, the authentication mechanism is better. So I think there's an opportunity and there's actually a white paper underway with about a hundred people from the, from the identity space to argue precisely that, that if banks were to cooperate on that, it could really prove a piece of the, provide a piece of the puzzle to solve that whole thing. Will it solve the whole puzzle of fraud and AML? I don't think so. There are other parts to it. You, you also need to then recognize patterns. The fact that I know that you are you doesn't allow me to say whether your transaction is money laundering or not. I, I need to know other things um, whether uh, about you, but it certainly is a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Natasha, I don't know whether you wanted to add something. You, you looked as though you wanted to say add something on digital identity, but maybe you don't. No, no, I was just going to say that Godfrey couldn't possibly answer on it because he's a non-executive at a digital ID outfit, but uh, he, he did. So. <laughs> That's precisely why. <laughs> uh, I see, okay. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, now, uh, talking about banks, uh, the book is is very generous towards banks. I don't know whether your editor pointed that out to you, but you know, banks have been a, a bit of a um, been in the stocks for for many years now for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but you point out in the book that uh, that um, you do point out, of course, they benefit from customer inertia, but you also point out they do real work, like um, managing counterparty risk and settlement risk. Uh, and running FX, dealing with large payments and so on. They're also regulated and regulators like regulated banks because that contributes to financial stability um, uh, and so on. So 
Do you think there's any other type of, of entity which can do this work? Could the risks be managed and the liquidity be managed in the FX and the, and, and the cash markets by any other means? Is there a way of redesigning the financial system? Or do you see any evidence of a financial system being designed in DeFi or somewhere else, which could do that work without the necessity for banks as, as central intermediaries? Uh, well, Mark Carney seems to be sort of looking that way, not so much to DEFI, but to, to non-bank financial institutions uh, moving into that world more, possibly with access to central bank money and so forth. So possibly, yes, um, it, it might be a way off. Um, but I, d I don't know that we are that kind. I think the point is that we were not that critical <laughs> because <laughs> for the last... You know, since 2008, everything that's been written about banks has been pretty critical, and we were fairly light on the criticisms. Um, but I'm not sure we were that kind to them. I don't know, Gottfried? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I was thinking more philosophically. I mean, one of the things that banks do is take risks and, 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 and buffer those risks with capital. And whenever we've tried to let those risks go to non-bank players, we find that everything goes swimmingly until it doesn't. And then it shows up in places where you hadn't expected it. We've had that discussion with hedge funds, with long-term capital management, with non-bank players taking the risk, which all goes well until it blows up. And then you find that it's outside the banking system. So also without the tools of, of managing that risk for, for, uh, for central banks uh, and others. Um, so that's, that's one point. I think the second point would be one in, in payments, indeed, especially in large value payments, liquidity is a key one. Uh, it only works if you, if you have somebody to smooth these payments for you. And I think it's one of the overlooked issues in cryptocurrencies is um, we all like the idea of a cryptocurrency, you settle it, and at that moment it's paid, it's final and everything. It's token versus token. People don't realize that you will need liquidity management in that world as well, right? Suppose you're trading stocks. If every stock is traded instantly and has to be paid instantly with cryptocurrencies, you need huge amounts of, of crypto. It's, it's like prepaying every trade. And a large part of what institutions like Euroclear, custodians, and all these people do, and, and, and RTGS and, and T2S, is to help people manage that liquidity and manage the wholesale industry uh, liquidity in both cash and securities and smooth those uh, things. And that involves risk, which is why they're all overseen and there's people watching at them and why they're under scrutiny of central banks, which I would argue is a good thing because if it weren't, that risk would show up in other players. And in the crypto world, it is showing up because a lot of what these exchanges do is provide liquidity we have no idea what would happen if everything blows up because we don't know how they're capitalized. We don't know uh, under what conditions they provide that liquidity, et cetera. So I, I think it's an overlooked part of settlement, um, especially when we move to crypto, is how, how does that liquidity function work, which traditionally has been provided by banks? Well, we do see liquidity being provided in the cryptocurrency markets in the DeFi sector where you know people are sitting on these piles of, of crypto that they, don't, they can't use them to pay for anything and, and they're, they're looking to get some kind of return on them by lending them in to people who can make use of them. And that's happening without central intermediaries. It's all done by smart contracts. So maybe that, I don't know what you feel about it, but maybe that technology contains a useful lesson whether for Mark Carney or somebody else, about how you could organize uh, that liquidity provision by means other than a regulated banking system. Yeah, but you have to be very careful there. I mean, the discussion I had the other day was, uh, well, we can, we can provide credits in, um, in crypto now. There's a, lot, there's a whole industry of providing liquidity or credits in Bitcoin, and that is then backed by collateral in another crypto uh, currency. And yeah, we're very safe because that collateral with this, can we apply a haircut of 50%? 200%, but, I think. Yeah, <laughs> uh, whatever. Yeah. The problem is with the volatility that you have in crypto prices, um, mm -hmm. you may end up in situations where even a 50% haircut is not enough because essentially at the moment you need to seize the collateral, you'll find that markets have frozen up. And, and you know, as banks have uh, found, there is no liquidity in the, in the underlying collateral and you're not able to execute uh, executed and basically whoever was the lender is is holding the bag so i i again i think it bears a bit of double clicking um to understand what's really going on there in terms of uh, DeFi and liquidity risk and other types of things right so banks are definitely not dead yet um but do you as, as you look 
forward to the to the long, maybe even the medium term. Is there a risk that banks um, are kind of reduced to utilities? We look at what's happening now. What I said earlier about people creaming off the, the payments revenues of banks, and and it's become pretty clear that you don't need banks to do payments. Um, you might contest that. I don't know, but but there is a risk that banks end up doing all the really difficult stuff like the liquidity provision, like the infrastructure, uh, like the risk management, while these third parties from Silicon Valley start to cream off um, relatively risk-free payments revenues, taking a cut of things in the way that you described Apple doing. Um, is there a risk that banks just have to be reduced to utilities because they've lost their the value-added services they provided on the, on the, on the payment side? Um, Maybe maybe central banks step in and start to, to do some of this this work as well, particularly with if CBDCs do. I mean, is there a, is there a risk here that that banks absolutely no occupation? There's mm -hmm. absolutely the risk there, and the analogy I would point to is the telco industry, where we've seen telecommunications company reduced to infrastructure companies. They're essentially regulated utilities, and Silicon Valley is providing all the applications on top of it. Right? Look at the way we communicate right now. We do it through WhatsApp. We do it through Zoom. We do it through all these things. And basically, the telco provides the pipe at the end of the day, and they charge you for that pipe. But they are a utility rather than being in the in the application business. And that risk is absolutely there for the banking system that they become the telcos of the new world. And again, Silicon Valley captures the, the value add on, on top of that. Mm -hmm. So that risk is there. Now, the telcos haven't done that badly. They've, they've adapted their pricing system. They've, they've found that providing infrastructure may not be that bad a business at the end of the day. There's huge investments going on in 5G, et cetera, which they are doing. They're charging their customers for it. Um, but it is a different world than the telcos of... Uh, of, of ages ago, yes. And, and maybe banks may face that same new world, at least in certain jurisdictions. Now, Godfrey, we've been asked a question specifically for you. You might like to think about that, but Natasha, did you want to add anything to, to what Godfrey was saying there about the future of banks, are the utilities or surviving in their present form? Uh, only just, just to um, underscore how frustrating it is to be interviewed because it, we took great pains in writing to the book not to predict the future or take sides. And every interview we have, everyone wants us to do exactly that. <laughs> um, I think you know, banks are a means to an end, not to um, repeat Mr. Carney yet again, but as he said yesterday, they're a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And certainly in the payments area, that's the case as much as any. I think at the retail, the customer uh, end of things, I, I don't think they are... In, in the UK, for instance, I'm not sure that they are best placed to, to, to be our front end experience. Things could change. Um, but I think the I think the those that are moving in to the area will, you know, they've got their wake up call coming as well in terms of the responsibilities that will be hoisted on them. I think one of the interesting things that we're seeing at the moment, and, and I, you could argue this, this happened to telcos and they just have to deal with it. And, and telcos are being obliged to provide the last mile and get broadband into rural areas, we're promised anyway. Um, but everyone's looking to banks to provide, you know, high street ATM access and branches in, in deprived out in rural areas. Well, when they don't have the economics of payments anymore, it, it's a strange constituency to be to be looking to. So I think I think the question's open, but I don't think I don't think it's one one thing will happen all of the world over. I think, think different things will play out in different places. Now, Godfrey, do you want to answer John Doyle's question here? Uh, he says it's specifically for you. With the competition now, is Swift safe, or does it need to innovate and challenge some of its so-called competitors? I mute myself, so you'd have to ask Swift on that one. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody's future is uh, for granted in this world. Uh, that goes for Swift, that goes for banks, that goes for all the players. Um, I do think that the model of correspondent banking, which is what Swift um, serves at the end of the day, um, that model is still the model that's being used to, to transfer money. Yeah? If you want to transfer wholesale money between countries, at the end of the day, you're going to end up in correspondent banking. Even, even if you do a card transaction, the net balances are still cleared through correspondent banking. If you do a Western Union or a transfer-wise transaction, they may do the retail part, but the wholesale balance still moves through correspondent banking at the end of the day, because that's the only way to move money between uh, currencies. Um, 
as long as that is the case, and um, we may get into a different world with crypto, but we'll get to that. Uh, we'll, we'll see where we where we get. But as long as that world is there, I think um, Swift will will serve its uh, its purpose. Does it need to innovate? Absolutely, like everybody else. I mean, technology is going very rapidly. Uh, to be fair, I think they have innovated together with the banks. I mean, you can now get money almost instantly from country A to country B, thanks to GPI. Banks have improved in real time. They're, they used to process their cross-border payments batch overnight. Many banks have now moved to intraday processing and they can process items real time on a day uh, as they come. Together with uh, with uh, Swift GPI, I think that has that is reducing payment chains dramatically and, and the throughput time. So I think there's lots of innovation uh, going on. Will it be enough? I'll get back to Natasha's point. It's very hard to predict the future. We've tried to stay away from it because we're certainly going to be wrong. Now we're into our last five minutes, so perhaps we could just close with one uh, one question. There's a point you make very well in the book: is that payments uh, is much more politically exciting than you might think. It has this huge geopolitical dimension to it. Obviously, the privilege of the US dollar and the, the, the Chinese renminbi to try to challenge and rest away that position. Um, payment systems, RTGS systems, ACHs uh, are part of a vital infrastructure which hostile states wish to, wish to disrupt. And so as you point out in the book, it actually does matter who owns and controls and pays for uh, the, the phrase you actually use, the plumbing um, behind our, our payments. Now, I'm not asking you to, to predict the future here, but I am asking you to, to give us some idea of, of we're in this globalized world. We, we've talked about a number of times this afternoon in this discussion, but will we ever get a payment system which corresponds exactly to how we interact with each other and how we do business with each other? Or are we always going to have these specific payments cultures peculiar to each country? And so you never get um, a fully global payment system because nationalistically minded governments want to hold on to uh, a vital national infrastructure. Is this some of the language you use there? The first thing I'd like to put you up on is you said there was a, an interesting point in the book. I said there's more than one interesting point in the book. Um, but you talked about the way we all behave with each other. Well, we don't share medicines um, between countries happily. Um, and we don't share health risks happily between countries, as we found out. And I, if people, if, if we've been asked the question, how would the world behave in, in a global pandemic five years ago, I'm not sure we'd have thought it would look quite like this. Um, so I think there will always be jurisdictional jealousies and, and you know, our governments are there to provide us with peace and prosperity. And if they can't assure us with a, the, you know, the provision of, a, of the public good of, of a payment system, um, whatever that looks like, um, that's problematic, I think. So until we're ready to share medicines happily, I, I don't see our sharing payment systems happily. But could we morph to, to be more like each other as we have with cards? And from a card experience, apart from the charges that we might face in, in different countries, we do have the same experience the world over. So Gottfried, the last word from you, is, is geopolitics an obstacle to an efficient global payment system? Yeah, I do, I do think it is. Um, I think I think we we are seeing because it is linked to technology, it is linked to data, it is linked to all sorts of things where countries like to exert their own influence. So I think there's certainly a tendency from countries to get much more interested in their payment system and make sure that they sort of keep it safe for their own citizens, um, and they may not have the whole world in mind. Um, so is it is it an impediment? Yeah, I would I would think is it is it an an insurmountable obstacle. I don't. I don't think so, um, because we effectively have a global payment system. Uh, we can argue whether it's as efficient as it could be, but we have one. Um, could it be better if there weren't any geopolitics? Yes, probably. Right. We must stop there. My last word is: you must all go out and buy the book. Uh, I can assure you, it's a great read. Um, don't be put off by the facts about payments. It's full of great stories and uh, interesting points, and I think you'll all. Um, get a lot out of it as I did. Uh, but we must stop there. I'd like to thank um, Gottfried and Natasha for, a, for a, a fascinating and very wide ranging discussion. I'd like to thank um, Shaul and Fabien and John for their, their questions and their comments that made 
uh, took us down some byways we might not have gone down. Um, so thank you all. Uh, Future of Finance, our next event is less than 24 hours away. It's tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, the 30th of June at uh, two o'clock London time. And our topic is whatever happened to blockchain in the bond markets. And I hope that lots of you can join us then. Uh, please do. But for now, it's goodbye from the three of us. Thank you.